Good morning. Uh, it's not my birthday. I am, though, I am excited to be back. You know, I, let me just take a moment of pastoral privilege, maybe. Um, there are a lot of my friends that, uh, that I have across the country who pastor like I do, and, and, uh, and every Sunday it's a battle to get up and, and go and know that you're supposed to be there because they're in a hard place, they're, they're at odds with some of their people, and, and, uh, and it's a difficult world that they, that they serve in. And I just, I, I never want to take for granted uh, what God has done here at Evergreen and the privilege that he has given me to be pastor. Um, every time I'm away, which is not very often, but every time I'm away, I'm reminded of how much I love this place and how much I love this people. And it's always a tremendous encouragement uh, to come back after, after a time away and just to be loved on and encouraged and, and, and told how glad you are to see me. And so I just appreciate you and, and the part that you play here. And, uh, and I'm so grateful to God for what he has assembled in this place of people called Evergreen. And um, so I just wanted to, to take a minute and, and thank you for, for who you are and what you do, the way you impact my life, and, uh, and what God has allowed us to share in this place together. I want to I want to let you know um, those baptisms that you saw this morning. Uh, the end of August is it's kind of funky. What what we call the church year, uh, it runs with the school year. It runs from the first of September to the end of August, and so for church statistics, denominational statistics, uh, we we run on that calendar. So it, it's a little bit odd, but. But our church year last year, the 2021 church year, um, Evergreen had 80 baptisms that year. And, okay, but what I was going to tell you is those two baptisms that you saw last Sunday was the end of the 21-22 church year. And those baptisms were number 80 and 81. So 81 baptisms last year, 161 baptisms in the last two years. Um, that is a mark of God doing something that we can't do for ourselves. And so I just wanted to let you know, I don't, I try not to, I, I, I don't revel in statistics much, uh, but, but when we talk about the number of baptisms, that represents people who are going to be in heaven that weren't going to be in heaven before. So uh, that's worth celebrating, and I wanted you to, to hear those numbers. Uh, today is the first Sunday of a new church year, and I want to begin uh, a new teaching series. I finished, uh, we, we spent eight weeks in the book of Ezekiel, and uh, I don't know how you felt about it, but it was an adventure. But we're going to come back today and begin uh, again in the book of John. I made a commitment about a year ago to teach through the book of John, and so we've done it in, in sections. I did the first three chapters in one sermon series, and then I came back and did chapters four through eight in a second uh, sermon series. And so for this fall, um, 
we're going to call this the Word Made Clear. And we're going to, um, we're going to be in John chapters 9 through 13 over the next several weeks. So I, some of you I know read ahead and you try and look ahead and, and know where we are. So we're going to be back in the Gospel of John for the next few weeks. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. We're going to be in, in John uh, chapter 9 today, if you want to go ahead and turn there. When I was 16 years old, I broke my leg. Well, let me rephrase that. When I was 16 year old, years old, the guy that I was wrestling with broke my leg. And uh, I spent, um, seems like seven days, maybe eight days in the hospital. It was a serious break. Um, the two bones in my lower leg were broken in four places total. And um, that's why I played baseball and didn't wrestle. Uh, because wrestling is for crazy people. <laughs> uh, but I was wrestling that night and, and, uh, and obviously lost the match. Um, and ended up with, a, with, with four breaks in my leg. Um, when I was in the hospital for that week and then later in a cast for about five months, um, my pastor came and visited me in the hospital and he said, why did this happen? Now, obviously within hours of that, that uh, trauma, I didn't have an answer to that question, but he said, pay attention and see if you can discover why this happened. What is God doing here? And at the time, I thought that was an odd question. And, and still, even now, I think it's a bit of an odd question because I think that life experiences, both good and bad, often cannot be interpreted in the moment. I think they only make sense. There's only some explanation, some meaning to them uh, when, when enough time passes that we look back on them and we can appreciate uh, how God was at work. But in the moment, it's often hard to, to understand. It's hard to know the purpose of an event in the middle of the event. What I have discovered over these years since that time is that the key to understanding the events of our lives comes from pursuing the knowledge of Jesus. I, I have a lot of people ask me uh, in, in conversation, they'll, they'll tell me their story and they'll talk about their circumstance, their, the situation that they're in, and they'll say, why is this happening? Why is God doing this? Why is God allowing this? Why am I going through this? Pastors are supposed to have answers, but usually my answer is, I don't know. I don't know yet. Because it's in the unfolding of the events of our lives that the events that have gone before begin to make sense. There's seldom an explanation in the middle of what you're experiencing. And that's why it's so dangerous when people go through difficult times and they say, well, they jump to conclusions. They say, well, well God doesn't exist. Or God doesn't love me. Or God is punishing me. And they jump to conclusions and those conclusions set them on a course that can be life-changing. 
when in fact the answer in the heart of difficult events has to be, I know God is good, and I'm going to trust that until this makes more sense. In John chapter 9, we come back to uh, this sequence. We, we left off several months ago in John chapter 8, where he talks about being the light of the world. Um, in John 8, he, we saw him offer forgiveness to a, a woman caught in adultery and, and sending her off to, to live a different life. In John chapter 9, we're going to see another unusual interaction that's going to get Jesus into trouble with the authorities, which is nothing new because they're mad at Jesus all the time anyway. But I want to read the bulk of this chapter, and then we'll go back, and, and I'll walk you through it um, in, in a little more detail. But, but follow along in, in John chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1, John tells us, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, we're going to talk about that question. It's a fascinating question. Who sinned to make this man born blind? Uh, his parents is an obvious solution, but they also say, could, did he sin? And I, I wonder about that. Are they saying, did he sin in his mother's womb in order for him to be born blind as a punishment? It's a it's an odd question, and we need, to, we need to walk through it. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spit on the ground and made mud from the saliva and applied the mud to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he left and washed and came back seeing. So the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but, but he's like him. The man himself kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who, called, who is called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? Where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought the man who was previously blind to the Pharisees. Now it was the Sabbath on the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Okay, there's a clue to the problem. Jesus just won't stop doing good stuff on the Sabbath. Well, they take him to the Pharisees in verse 15. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied mud to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was dissension among them. So they said again to the man who was blind, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it about him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? 
then how does he now see? His parents then answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him. He's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already reached the decision that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be excommunicated from the synagogue. It was for this reason that his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? I got to meet this blind man someday. Because <laughs> this, <laughs> this, this, this is the guy I want to know. Sarcasm is his love language. <laughs> you don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They spoke abusively to him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, well, here's the amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if someone is God fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins and yet you're teaching us. So they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out and upon finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered by saying, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, I believe Lord. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see my face and those who see, those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Let's talk about this man. This man <clears throat> got up one day expecting his world to be exactly like it had been every other day for the rest of his life. He was not a man who had been in an accident and had become blind. He was not a man who had a disease at some point in his life and lost his sight. He was born blind every single day as a child, as a teenager, as an adult, darkness. The complete and total darkness that comes with that kind of blindness. He didn't have memories of things that he had seen. He didn't have images in his mind of things that he could recall darkness he woke up this day expecting everything to be as it had always been actually that's the way most of us wake up rather than the expectation that god could do something at any moment that we could be a part of we wake up expecting every day to be just like the day before that things will never change and we're always caught off guard when things are different when God does something, when our circumstances change, we, we say, well, that was unexpected. Well, things are unexpected, but change itself shouldn't be so unexpected. 
his world changed because he crossed paths with Jesus. But the best part of this story is not the healing of a blind man. It's the progressive testimony of that man who now can see. That's where I want us to look. This chapter gives us what I've called a partial explanation of troubles. The disciples see this man begging. They're walking with Jesus through the city, and they, they cross paths with this man, and they ask a question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, it's a typical misunderstanding that is still with us 2,000 years later. The misunderstanding is that bad circumstances always equal judgment. Now, Jesus is going to do something uh, unusual, something that the disciples didn't expect. He's going to give them God's perspective on troubles. In these verses, they said, Jesus, uh, did the man sin while he w- before he was even born? Is that possible? Or did his parents sin, and this man is suffering because his parents were sinners? And Jesus says, it was neither. Verse 3, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed on him. Jesus is going to give the disciples God's perspective on troubles. He says there's no special wickedness in this man or in his family. Rather, this is a moment that has been providentially prepared by God from the beginning of this man's life in order to display the Messiah who has come to take away the sins of the earth. It's what we call paradoxically the blessing of difficulty. Think about it. What Jesus is suggesting is that this man was born blind, went through childhood, adolescence, into adulthood, precisely so that in the fullness of time, at this very moment, he could offer his life as a platform to put the Messiah on display to Israel. Now think about that. His suggestion here is that when we face difficulties, when we go through things that we think make us broken, that inconvenience us, that, that, that make us struggle or suffer, Jesus is suggesting that one of the possibilities is that God is preparing a moment in your life to put Jesus on display. Now, we can get real indignant and say, well, it's pretty selfish of God to make this man blind just so that years down the road, he could have an opportunity for Jesus uh, to display himself as the Messiah who's come to save the world. Well, here's the thing. When When we have that attitude, it's because we are suggesting that God owes us an easy life. The fact of the matter is, God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you wealth. He doesn't owe you health. He doesn't owe you an easy life. And yet, 
we live with this typical theological misunderstanding that when something happens with our health, when something happens when we lose a job, when something happens and, and there's some event that, that causes us to struggle or to suffer, that God has somehow left us. He's abandoned us. Or worse, He's judging us because He doesn't love us. The fact of the matter is, God is working from a bigger perspective than we are. And what he's doing is he's seeing the vastness of the story of redemption in every generation, on every continent, for every individual who has ever lived since the birth of man until now. And your story is a part of the thread of redemption that God is weaving through the circumstances of all of us in order to accomplish his purposes. You say, well, it's not fair. This man was blind. Yeah, but you know what? This man is not blind for all of eternity. And I promise you, when you meet him someday, He's going to introduce himself and he say, I, I, I don't really remember your name. And he goes, yeah, yeah, my name wasn't listed, but I was that blind man in John chapter 9. And you're going to say, oh, man, I'm sorry about all those years that you were blind. He's going to say, no, 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 no. Hey, listen, I made it into the story. I was a part of the drama of the unfolding of redemption to the whole world. Jesus used me to display himself. Don't apologize. I'm just glad to be in the story. You see, our attitudes about our own circumstances would change if we could get past the idea that we're the star of our own story. We're not. We're not the star of the story. We're a part of God's story. It's much bigger than us. And sometimes we go through stuff. A 16-year-old breaks his leg in four places three months after he got his driver's license. That's suffering. But whether you're 16 or 112, circumstances are not a reflection of the level that God loves you or doesn't love you. But God is always working in us and through us, even in our troubles, so that Jesus can be put on display. It's as I called it, the blessing of difficulties. When our difficulties move us toward God and provide a platform for his glory to be displayed in us, that's a great thing. We are called as followers of Jesus to live well. We are called to struggle well, and we are called to die well. Because in the living, and the struggling, and even in the dying, we are a platform to put Jesus on display. Well, there's some obedience that's required in this process. In verse 6, it says that, that after, he, after Jesus had said this to the, to the disciples, I'm the light of the world, then he spit on the ground and made mud from the saliva and applied the mud to the eyes of the man and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Don't miss the simplicity of verse 7. So he left and washed 
and came back seeing. God's best interventions often wait for our participation through obedience. This man could have said, you're putting mud on my face. What is wrong with you? He could have wiped it off and stormed away in a snit. And guess what? He would have still been blind. Sometimes we get into a snit ourselves because things aren't unfolding the way we want them to be. Not understanding that, that, that a disciple has an obligation to obey Jesus, not just in hard times, but especially in hard times. He could have been mad at God. He could have been put out at Jesus. Instead, Jesus said, now I've put this mud on your eyes. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. You see, this man had been blind from birth. He probably has an attitude that says, what could it hurt? I'm not going to be more blind if I go do this. And yet, some of us are mad at God because he won't act in our life. He won't solve the circumstances we're in. He won't fix our problem. And yet, the question has to be, is there some part on your part that's still left undone? God's best interventions often hinge on simple actions that express obedience. He went and washed in the pool of Siloam. Pretty straightforward, easy enough to do. Even a blind man knew where this was and how to get there. Jesus didn't ask him to climb Mount Everest. He didn't ask him to do something that was impossible to do, but he asked him to do something. And if he would do the something that he could do, then waiting on the other side of that obedience was God waiting to do something that the man couldn't do. Well, jump down to the end of this story. We'll look at the man's testimony here in a minute, but I want you to see God's purpose for evangelism. You say, wait, where does that come from? God's purpose for evangelism. We're talking about a blind man. Okay, drop down and read verse 39 with me. We'll read... Um, yeah, verse 39, it says, And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In other words, Jesus summarizes this story. Now, we'll look at the man's testimony in just a minute. But Jesus summarizes this event by saying, I came into this world not to answer curious questions or to convince skeptics. I came to put on display who I am. And by doing that, I will save those who acknowledge that they're lost and I will confound and confuse those who think they have all the answers. In other words, Jesus does his best work when we're not satisfied that we, that we have it all mapped out. Do you ever tell yourself, man, I have no idea what's going on in my life. I don't know why I've, I've been through what I've been through. I, I don't know why I'm going through what I'm going through. I, I wish I could get some answers. See, here's the thing. We have this illusion 
that if we could just get the why behind the events of our lives, that it would all make sense and we would go, oh, okay, well, now it's okay. The classic example of this is, is the book of Job. In the book of Job, we know, as the readers, we know that there's sort of a, a heavenly wager taking place. The enemy comes to God and he goes, and God with great pride says, have you considered my servant Job? Man, this guy, this guy is following me. This guy loves me. This guy serves me with enthusiasm. And, and, and the enemy goes, well, of course he does. You give him all kinds of blessings. And God says, no, it's deeper than that. Nah, he just serves you because you bless him. And God says, okay, I give you permission. Go take his blessings away. Well, sure enough, he takes his blessings away. There's an attack, an attack like Job never saw coming. And Job says, well, the Lord gives, the Lord takes. Same response. What? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, Satan says, well, of course, you know, I, you took away the blessings, but that you wouldn't let me touch him. I mean, if you let me get really up close and personal with him, he'll spit in your eye. And God said, no, do your worst. And so the enemy did. He did his worst. He came at, 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 at Job. It, 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 it did damage in his, in his family, in, in his marriage. He, 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 he stole his health. His wealth took a hit. Um, I mean, Job was, was a disaster. Even Job's wife said, why, why don't you just curse God and get it over with? Just curse God, let him strike you down. At least you'll be done with all this suffering. And Job said another great statement of faith. He said, even if he slays me, I will praise him. You see, Job's faith was strong in the good times, but Job's faith was legendary in the hard times. Now, here's the kicker. Job, all the way through the book, says, I, I, this is unjust. I don't deserve this. I've been a righteous man. If I could just talk to God, if I could just explain the situation to God, if I could have five minutes' time with God, he'd go, oh, wait, there's been a mistake. So at the end of the book, what happens? Job's gotten all this bad advice from all of his friends who are telling him all the reasons why he deserves what he's getting. But God shows up at the end of the book. But here's the thing. God doesn't show up to explain himself. We know what was going on as the reader. We're given the backstory of Job's sufferings. But in the book of Job, do you know that Job never one time gets an explanation from God? Do you know that God doesn't owe you an explanation for your life? What he did was, he said, okay, Job, here I am. You've been talking at me. You've been talking about me. But now I'm going to do some talking. So put on your big boy pants and be quiet. And God begins to talk. Some of the most majestic words in the entire Bible are in the last four chapters of the book of Job. Where God says things like, where were you when I hung the stars in space? Where were you when I raised the dawn and light flooded through for the day? Where were you 
when I set the boundaries of the mighty oceans? Where were you when I filled the, the land and the sea with the beasts that expressed my glory? Where were you? And again, we have a tremendous statement of faith where Job says, I've been talking about things that I don't know anything about, so I'm just going to shut my mouth now. Listen, here's the thing about difficult times, hard circumstances, rough days. Sometimes God is doing something that we don't yet have an explanation for. It could be nothing more than God giving us the privilege of struggling through something difficult so the world can see Jesus in us. Well, that seems unfair. Listen, you got, you got eternity. You know what God promised us? He promised us healthy bodies. He promised us a life without suffering. No more tears. He promised us community, wholeness, love, joy. He promised us rest. The Hebrew word shalom encompasses all of those things. But it's not yet. He didn't promise us all that today. He's doing something in us and through us and around us today. But we will not be shortchanged. Whatever our struggles, whatever the things that we suffer with, whatever, whatever we have to go through in this life, we will not be shortchanged because waiting for us is that compensation, if you will. God will make all things right. And we will look back and say, man, I'm just glad I had the privilege of putting Jesus on display. I got to be part of the story of redemption. I got to allow people to see Jesus in me. And folks, they see him in you a lot more clearly in your struggles than they do when you're at ease. That's the purpose of evangelism. It's fascinating. When you jump, jump back up to verse 34, we're going to talk about this, this testimony. But, but verse 34 is a fascinating verse. He's been talking to these Pharisees, and they answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and yet you were teaching us? So they put him out. Huh. Listen, <laughs> because he was blind, because he had a physical infirmity, because he was blemished, if you will, he had never set foot inside the temple one day in his life. He wasn't allowed to. I find it fascinating that they hated Jesus so much that they expelled this man from a church that he'd never been allowed to enter in the first place. They kicked him out even though they'd never let him in. God used that moment, an entire lifetime of blindness. So in that moment... Jesus in his glory was put on display for the whole world to see. Now, here's where I want you to see the, the real part of this, the, the important part of this story is the telling of his story. 
The way he shares life in the telling of his story. Now, now look, uh, I've called it personal announcements of grace. But I want you to see, it starts with his initial encounter. I, I want to just give you a, a number of verses so you can mark them if, if you want to. In verse 11, they came to him and said, how were your eyes opened? In verse 11, he says, the man who is called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. A single verse, straightforward summary of events. There was a man named Jesus and he came and he put this mud on my face. His initial encounter with Jesus, the only thing he knew was the man's name. The man called Jesus. This blind man had no deep knowledge to identify beyond the name of the source of his grace and healing. Listen, here's the key. We're going to see that from that point of not knowing anything more than the name of Jesus, his testimony is going to get bolder as his comprehension of Jesus increases. But let's not go past this too quickly. What I want you to know is, you don't have to know anything beyond the name of Jesus for him to do a work in your life. How are you healed? Well, I don't really know. There was a man named Jesus. And he came and he put mud on my eyes. And he told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So I did. And then I could see. That's all I know about him. That was the initial encounter. But look at what happens in verse 17. They come back, they're, they're, they're still talking to him, and there's a little bit of dissension in these verses in the Pharisees. There's two, there's two schools of thought, and they're struggling with it. One school of thought says, well, he did, that on, he did this on the Sabbath. So even if it's a real healing, it, it doesn't qualify as a, as a good thing because he broke the Sabbath to do it. Because, see, that's why Jesus, I think, used the mud. Could Jesus have just said, hey, I, I want you to see? Could, it, could he have just spoken sight to this man? Absolutely he could. But, see, he was setting up this encounter. By, by reaching down, he spit on some dirt, and he formed it into mud, and he rubbed it on the man's eyes. By doing that, <laughs> he was actually tilling the ground. He was breaking the Pharisees' rules about the Sabbath. Did Jesus need the mud to heal this man's eyes? Was there any medicinal value in mud and spit? No, but it was to provoke this confrontation. They said, well, it can't be a good thing because he broke the Sabbath to do it. He broke the law. He, 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 he's disqualified. But there was another school of thought, and they said, but, but wait a minute. He healed a man who'd been born blind. Now, we've seen people who went blind, and the doctors could figure out something to reverse the effects. We, we've seen that. That's possible. But nobody in the history of the world has ever healed a man who was born blind. This is fundamentally different than any other situation we've ever run across. This must be a man from God. And so it says there was dissension. Let me tell you something. There's always going to be disagreement between people who, who look at spiritual evidence and people who are busy keeping rules. That is always going to be a tension there. 
And so it says there was dissension among the Pharisees. Well, they, come, they, they continued the conversation with the man. And in verse 17, so they said again to the man who was blind, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Now, remember, all he knew about him was he, his name was Jesus. But now it says he is a prophet. He's already progressed in his understanding of Jesus from just the name that identified him to the evaluation that this man must be a prophet. A prophet is a person who was sent from God with God's authority. This man has worked out in his mind that this miracle that has just taken place in his life couldn't be other than from God. And so the carrier of the miracle must himself be a prophet. He had God's authority over nature to reverse congenital blindness. But then look at verse 25. He's going to continue to grow in his understanding of Jesus. Verse 24 says, so a second time, oh, and, and we're, we're skipping the whole conversation with the parents. See, if they can prove that he wasn't actually born blind, they can discredit the miracle. So they go find the man's parents. They say, is this your son? Yeah, that, that's our son. Was he really born blind? Yeah, yeah, he was born blind. Well, then how does he see now? And the parents, they, they understand the politics of the day. And they say, well, you know, we don't know. We don't know who did it. We don't know how it happened. In fact, he's of age. He's mature. Go ask him. They deflect the question. Why? Well, John tells us. Because they were afraid of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees had already decided, regardless of evidence, that anybody who said Jesus was the Christ, and by the way, Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So anybody that claimed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, they were already kicked out of the synagogue. They were already, they were already gone. That rule was already in place, regardless of the evidence. They knew that. So they just deflect and they say, well... He's, he's of age, go ask him. And so they do. They come back and ask him again. This is in verse uh, 25. Uh, they say, in verse 24, they say, give glory to God, which means tell the truth. It's kind of a, a euphemism, but it means tell the truth, give glory to God. Tell the truth, we know that this man is a sinner. In other words, Jesus can't be a prophet. He's got to be a sinner because he broke the Sabbath. Verse 25, he then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Folks, let me tell you, that is a one-verse summary of your testimony. I have too many people say, I, I can't share my faith. I can't talk to people about Jesus. I, there's so much I don't know. I'm afraid of getting a question that I can't answer, and, and I'll be embarrassed. Listen, do you, did, you, did you hear what this man said? They asked him a theological question. Is, we know this man's a sinner. They, were, they wanted a debate about whether Jesus was a sinner or a prophet. And he says, I don't know any of that. It's okay for you to say, I don't know every theological truth in the Bible. I'm not an expert. I don't know it all. I don't know the answer to your question. But I do know this. He did something in me that made me different. I was blind, but now I see. 
I don't know all the theology. I don't know all the explanations. I can't have a debate with the experts in the, in the synagogue. But I know this. I can look you in the eyes and I can see you because Jesus came to me and he made me different. That's your testimony. It is okay to say what you don't know as long as you follow it up with what you do know. He started by just knowing that the man's name was Jesus. Then he understood that he was a prophet. And now he says he's a miracle worker. And I won't be distracted by theological debates. I'm just telling you what I know. This initial encounter was increasing in its understanding. Look in verse 27. Uh, they said, how did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And then I think with a smirk on his face, this is my sanctified imagination. I think with a smirk on his face, he goes, you don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Is that why you're asking? You want me to tell you again? Because you want to follow him? Oh, man. See, he's now not just a miracle worker. He's suggesting that this man, Jesus, is worthy of disciples. He's worthy of having people follow him. Do you see this ironic question that he offers to these smug theologians? It's a continued progression. I only know his name is Jesus, but now I think he's a prophet. But now I know he's a miracle worker because he's changed me. And you know, I think he might be worth following. Is that why you're asking? You want to follow him too? But then get this. In verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if someone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He goes one more step. And he says, this man named Jesus, who I think is a prophet, and I know he's a miracle worker who's changed me, and I'm pretty sure he's worthy of having disciples follow him. But he goes all the way to say, he's from God. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. It's great because in the Greek, from God here literally means on speaking terms with God. Do you see how his understanding of Jesus is increasing from where it started and how his testimony about Jesus is getting bolder along the way. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, they answered him in verse 24, you were born entirely in sin and yet you're teaching us. So they put him out. Here's the thing. The closer you get to Jesus, the less at home you're going to be with religion. I want you to understand your story is not static, just like this man's story was not static. You should be growing in your understanding of who Jesus is and what he's doing in your life. And as you grow in that understanding, it should lead you to bolder witness. And it should lead you to this, more intense worship. Look at the, the closing verses, verse 35. Jesus comes and finds him. He gets kicked out of the church that he's never been allowed to go to anyway. And Jesus comes and finds him. I love that. Jesus healed him, but he didn't just leave him to go on his way. He came and found him because there was more than physical sight that this man needed. 
Jesus heard that they had put him out, and upon finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered by saying, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, I believe, Lord. And he worshipped him. Jesus now raises this man's confession even higher to a belief that Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One sent from God. His encounter became acquaintance. His acquaintance became understanding. And his understanding led him to worship. What did you know about Jesus at first? When you first discovered who Jesus was, what was your level of knowledge? What, did you have a seminary degree? Or were you in a vacation Bible school room where a teacher told you a story about Jesus and how much he loved you? What have you learned about Jesus since that time? Has your knowledge of him grown? Have you walked in the Word of God faithfully so that you learn theology? You know more about who Jesus is today than you ever did? Well, here's the final question. Does that increase of knowledge inspire your worship? In other words, let's not put it from my childhood encounter in vacation Bible school to today. Let's talk about this week. Have you, have you spent time in the Word of God this week so that you know some little tidbit, something more today than you knew a week ago about Jesus? And does that some little something bring you to church on this particular Sunday morning with a little bit more fire to present yourself before the throne of grace and offer worship? You see, we should always be learning more about Jesus. We should always be growing in our understanding of Jesus because as we know Jesus better, two things always happen. Our life begins to make more sense and our worship begins to have more power. If you want to make sense of your life, if you want to worship with more energy and vigor, both of those things happen from the same source. You go meet Jesus more than you've known him before. You want to be bold in evangelism? Comprehend more of Jesus. You want to be more engaged in worship? Learn more about Jesus. You want to make sense of the circumstances of your life? Learn more about Jesus, because in him we have the answers. Go find your way into the Word of God this week. Start reading in John chapter 10. We'll pick up where we left off. Learn more about Jesus. Make sense of your life. Bring boldness to your witness. And bring power to your worship. That's the prayer for the people who are called Evergreen. In Jesus' name, amen.